Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi there, it's Basic Folk Time. I'm Cindy, you know what you're listening to. Um, This is where we hear honest and authentic conversations with folk musicians. They could be under the radar folk musicians or you could be like a super duper folk nerd like me and know who all these people are. Either way, glad you're here because uh, we uh, have a great guest today on Basic Folk. Her name is Nora Jane Struthers. She is extremely well-spoken, very talented. She plays with her band, The Party Line, Nora Jane Struthers and The Party Line. Uh, She is originally from New Jersey and has just had an incredible life story, uh, which we get to all of the details in her life. You know, she started off um, playing bluegrass with her father, and then when she was younger, she was diagnosed with dyslexia, and then she had issues with infertility and she just she's like a she's like my hero she's so awesome um she's very fun to talk to it was kind of like um you know very easy to talk to uh i think that you're gonna you're gonna like this she's very she's like the first extrovert we've had on basic folks with which is exciting for me um her latest album champion was released last year uh and we're gonna hear the title track from her 2017 album champion and then get to our conversation with nora jane struthers on basic folk there's a light on in your hallway kettle screaming on the stove dogs barking at the back door bathroom tiles black with mold baby's on sleeping Here we go. 
thank you so much for talking to me. My pleasure. Um, you grew up in New Jersey. I did. Which you make this really funny joke on stage about how it's the bluegrass uh, hotbed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Country and bluegrass music hotbed, New but Jersey. What was it really? It was not a country music hotbed <laughs> or bluegrass. Yeah. It, you know, I grew up playing bluegrass with my dad. And um, when I was a teenager, I started going down south to these fiddlers conventions and I discovered the, you know, beauty of a musical community really for the first time. And um, before that, it was just like me and my dad playing these old songs in our house. You know, nobody else in my town was playing bluegrass. Nobody else in my region was playing bluegrass. And I was like, definitely felt a little weird that 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 was something that I was into. But I mean, not that there aren't people in New Jersey that play. Of course there are. Like Tony Trishka lives there and like Railroad Earth is from there. And um, there are humans in New Jersey that play bluegrass, but it's just not a, it's not a cultural norm the way it is in other places. What was it like when you first discovered other bluegrass communities and were you even able to put a word to what it was that was happening? No, yeah, I think it probably took a while to be able to like frame that. Um, I mean, I started going down south when I was like 18 to the, the Fiddler's Convention in Galax, Virginia, and I've been going ever since then I go every year and um you know it's like a second little family of these people that you like camp out with for a whole week and have you know songs that you like only sing with this one person who lives in North Carolina and y'all meet up in Virginia for this festival and that's the only time you sing that song you know and I just I love that I love that this like bizarre extended family that's a such a great way to put it like you know you only sing this one song with this one person it's like your summer camp friends that you have like the inside inside jokes, jokes. with yeah, yeah totally yeah, yeah. i really love the origin of your name nora jane mm. can you talk about that sure yeah um my parents were hippies and they named me after uh jane austen uh they were educated hippies um and uh <laughs> which i love i love being named after her what a what a great namesake and um also uh after this tv show nick and nora charles the thin man series Um, and that's where the Nora came from. And I've, I'm like not actually super familiar with that. Uh, it used to be a radio, it was like a radio drama before it was a TV show, which is kind of cool, which I found out after I read my own Wikipedia page and then clicked on the link. (laughs) (laughs) Um, did you like your name growing up? I hated my name. I did like my name and I, you know, I'm, I don't want to get out of order in your questioning, but I'm pregnant with a baby girl right now. And I'm like thinking about what to name her and I've got some really beautiful family names that I would love to use, but they're like in the top 10 most used baby names of 2018. And when I was a kid, I loved being the only Nora in my school. Mm. You know, it was just like, I'm the Nora, you know, I get to, and then, and so at home I'm Jane and at school I was Nora. It's all very confusing. There's like a, and then now I'm Nora Jane. So. There you go. Do you have um, your your dad is still around? Your mom's still around? Mm-hmm. Do you uh, obviously they're very good at naming? What's your sister's name? My sister's name is Abigail Laurel. My God, I know she was named after Abigail Adams. Wow, I know. Oh man, what a badass! I know. Have you asked your parents for any advice for on baby names? I I have a little bit. They keep my mom keeps texting me with these like obscure family names that I mean they're not obscure names. They're just like obscure family members. You know, like. Your dad's great aunt was Louisa, and we like that name. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's 
I like the name Louisa, but but, but I think if I don't know. Is it well, Louisa? Funny. Louisa May Alcott, Little Women. There you go. She should have opened with that. She should have opened with that. Yeah. I needed to connect to it more. You know. <laughs> also, when you were a kid, you were diagnosed with dyslexia. True. How did that affect you, and how did you overcome it? Or do you overcome dyslexia? I think you do overcome it. I mean, I think you you learn you learn how to deal with it. And um, in my case, it just like I remember, like I really clearly remember being like in elementary school after having been diagnosed with this and like just thinking like, man, like I, I know I'm not stupid. Like I know that I'm not stupid. Like I had to go to some like special classes and stuff and they didn't make me like feel bad to go to those or anything. But I like, I was, I just had this thing where I was like, I I know I'm a smart person. I just need to figure out how to get that out of myself and into the world. That's what it felt like. I felt like there was a barrier between the smartness that was in me and its ability to interact with the world. That's really impressive. Because I, I don't. How old were you when you were? I was probably that? like six when wow. I was thinking about that, and and like and so I just uh, I just worked really hard all the time. I just like did hours and hours and hours of practice for everything that really shaped greatly who I am. I think, and and I think also like having a, a you know quote unquote disability is a positive thing for anyone because then you can just it gives you an outlet to to empathize with people who are different you know than you and i think that's a good thing yeah sets you up for success for all sorts of adversity yeah that you face yeah give me grit um so let's talk about your dad you said you played music with your dad he's a banjo and a guitar player and he must have had an enormous influence on you as a musician. Um, do you have early memories of him? Like, what are your earliest memories of him playing music? And did you always want to play because of him? I think of my voice as my primary instrument, really. And I like just, I don't remember like the first time I ever sang with him because I feel I feel like I've always, like as long as I've been talking, I've been singing with him. That's you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's awesome. And yeah, you know, I think some of my earliest memories of him playing where like he would bring his guitar into my room and and sing me lullabies um the the main lullaby that he would sing me is this old song called hobo's lullaby which is it was written by gobel reeves it's like a depression era song about like you know hobos hopping trains and the trains singing them to sleep it didn't occur to me until i was like older that that is a hilarious song to sing to your child (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah, not setting them up for success. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not sure about that, uh, but I'm told I'm going to sing it to my kids. So whatever. Great. Well, um, what kind of what kind of dad was he? Like, what kind of guy is he? He is and was incredibly gentle and mild mannered, uh, like not pushy in any way. You know, just like sweet and kind and smart, super smart. You know, just great, great man. You're in a band with your dad called the Dirt Road Sweethearts? Uh, singular. Dirt Road Dirt Sweetheart. Road sweetheart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's it like to be in a band with your dad versus with the party line? Well, the band with my dad is, it's just me and my dad. Um, so, so it's a, so it's a, a duet. The father-daughter duo. Yeah. That was the incarnation that I first started gigging with. So like my dad and I, when I was in college and just after college, started playing these like folk halls in New Jersey and dive bars in Brooklyn as this father-daughter duo. And it was 
like really good experience for me, of course. Um, was he booking the shows or were you? No, I was, I was like, yeah, I mean, we didn't get paid, you know, so this wasn't like a paid situation. It was like, there's this place down in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey called the Albert Music Hall. And um, it's like all these very sweet octogenarians come out like every Saturday night or, or 80 year every other. Yeah. 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 Good, good word. Yeah. Probably some younger folks too. Probably some older folks too. They just like, it's this big hall and and there's like you get you play like three songs or something and there's a bunch of different people that come and it it was it's a, a chance to get in front of a large audience mm. with and like gain a little experience and then the dive bars in brooklyn i would book this but um i mean yeah we didn't make any money but uh but it, you know super fun and and the main i think that the thing you know the, i think that close harmony is one of life's great joys and that singing with my dad is like you know you know in the party line my my husband joe overton is in my band he's the banjo player banjo fiddle pedal steel my dad and and joe are the only two people that i've ever sung with i, th- I think this is true who uh i don't have to change how i sing to just have it blend perfectly you know, and they don't change how they sing. It just, it's just natural. Like there's no like adapting tone or changing vowel shapes or anything. It's just like, you just sing and it lines up like a laser and it's like, gives you that buzzy, buzzy thing that I love so much. And it's just, it's the best thing ever. Joe also seems to be a pretty gentle guy. Does he share a lot of qualities with your dad? He sure does. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I know. It's so funny that I married a banjo player. I know. (laughs) It's, it's a little it's a little much, honestly. Um, so it's pretty clear how your dad, like his relationship to music. But what about your mom and your sister? Totally. Yeah, they they um, my sister used to sing with us when with me and my dad when I mean, not with me, and my dad, like my sister, my dad and I all used to sing together. She pursued other things. She was like a really talented visual artist. And I think for me, being dyslexic had a lot to do with my gravitating towards music because I'm such an aural learner. Like my best friend used to like read me my, my history textbook over the phone when I was in high school, because that's how I can like absorb information is when I hear it. Um, if I'm like reading it, I, it's a lot harder for me to remember stuff, you know? And so music is just like the easiest way for me to interact with the world, I think. So my sister, like, you know, has other talents and just sort of went on and did other things. But she had a huge influence on me musically because she's six years older than me and was like totally into grunge and got me into Pearl Jam and Nirvana and R.E.M. and Tori Amos. Yeah. Speaking of, we one of my favorite experiences in life was uh, she went to college up at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And um, when I was in high school, I went up to visit her for a weekend, and she, and we went to a Tori Amos concert in Providence, and it was and we were like in the third row. It was fantastic. Whoa. I was gonna say that it's pretty lucky that you had a sister who is the age that she is, because you kind of were a teenager in a very weird time for music in the <laughs> late '90s, early 2000s. Mm. So if you didn't have her, like your mainstream music might be like in sync. And Britney Spears. That's possible. Yeah. But you say you were listening to Grunge and Tori Amos. And I've read that that style of music also informs your musicality. Is that true? I think it does. I hope it does. 
Do you have any other details you can share about that? Because I'm I'm curious too, because there is something about your music that goes beyond the roots world. Yeah, I mean, I think especially with my band that I have now, I mean, I've had the same band for almost five years. And, um, you know, when I added electric guitar with Josh, Josh Vanna, um, it just all of a sudden felt like, oh yeah, this is, this is the sound that I want. Like before, like everything that I was doing acoustically before electric guitar, I really liked it, but it wasn't the thing, you know, it wasn't like, like when I play with my band now, I feel like there's like light shooting out of my sternum. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's like the the thing that I want to be doing. So, and it's not just the electric guitar. I mean, I think, I think that like those like grunge bands, their songwriting oftentimes like had elements of storytelling in it, which like, there's not a lot of stories in, in sync. Yeah. No, stuff. not. No. Well, I, you know, I haven't listened to all that much of it, so maybe there is. There's some pretty sweet dance moves. Yeah, that come um, along with that. maybe there is. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, I don't really know. Do you? I mean, can you talk about it? What do you hear? So I've <laughs> I was reading about um, somebody was reviewing your record, and they brought that up that you know, there's this you're interested in grunge and and all this kind of like 90s stuff and then they listed a, a bunch of music like three musicians and one of them was neil young mm. that your music was reminiscent of and it was like you, you were like i've never listened to them ever you know and you know who neil young really influenced a lot is pearl jam there you go I mean, for the record, I have listened to Neil Young now, but as a kid, Neil Young was not a part of sure. my... I think that was my answer there. It was like, that's not a part of my, like, history. Oh, okay. I don't want people out there thinking I haven't listened to Neil Young. That would be bad. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with the guitar in general? I watched this video of you going through a vintage store, and like a vintage clothing store and a guitar store, and there was a room of electric guitars, and you're like, these guitars are so beautiful, but I would never play them. I'm an acoustic. I, I play acoustic. So I do play an electric guitar, actually, in my band now. Yeah, I, that was a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and I'm still not, like, you know, I feel, if I'm, if I'm being totally honest, which, like, why not, <laughs> I feel a little bit like an imposter when I'm playing the electric guitar, because I like haven't studied it I don't feel like I you know I, I I feel like kind of okay about it now because I've played it enough that like what I'm I like I'm like yeah I like this t- I like I like this tone you know I can like be like oh no that's too dark or this is too bright or whatever but I don't get that into the pedals you know what I mean I like mm-hmm. my electric guitar player is a genius oh, and he's like really good he's so good and like I kind of you know I lean on him a little bit for for taste feedback no pun intended and um <laughs> you know i just like i i acoustic music is like that's what i grew up with and it's just what's it's my it's the bedrock for me so it's i'm always going to be more comfortable playing an acoustic than an electric i kind of i've been thinking about like what i should do in like the month before my baby comes and if i should just like just like hammer down and like learn how to shred some electric guitar <laughs> because I won't have any time to do it after the baby comes, oh, you know, but what I don't kind, know if I'm going to do it. What kind of shredding would you go for? Would you go for like a, you know, like a crazy horse type of situation or would you be more like Mark Knopfler? 
you know, or or I would I would probably go more the like Sister Rosetta Tharp route. Yeah, that's I was gonna like I should name some female guitarists. Um, no, 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 not not because she's a woman, but just because it's like, uh, it, it it's something that I feel like is attainable for me. Not that she's not a badass because she totally is, but yeah. like I like I I get it. I like feel yeah. the way that she plays the electric guitar is very rhythmic. And as uh, I'm like mostly a rhythm player, and like uh-huh. the way she plays her leads is very rhythmic, and so that. I feel like I could do that. What's that line about her? They say rock and roll was invented by a queer black woman. <laughs> was she queer? I think so. I didn't even know that. That's awesome. Yeah, she she was just a total hoss. I love yeah. her. I'm very impressed with your vocabulary, ah. um, which makes sense. You went to NYU and you got an English degree. Did you always love words and, and writing? And what has been your connection to... Because you... Even in this conversation, you've thrown down some pretty awesome words. Oh, great. Good. That's good. Sometimes I feel like I, uh, you know, you know what it is, is that my mother-in-law has the most amazing vocabulary. And when I'm, she, she teaches um, history at uh, Middle Tennessee State University. She just uses amazing words all the time. And I feel like I have. You need to step it up. I feel like I need to step it up. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, honestly, I think, I mean, my mom and dad both were, American studies majors and English majors and, and um, have beautiful vocabularies and always spoke to my sister and I with the, their fullest vocabulary, which I think is, you know, the right thing to do when you're raising kids, probably, mm-hmm. so they can learn all the words. I think the real beauty of language is, is in its not to show off, but to more accurately communicate mm. what whatever it is you're trying to say. Yeah, I never feel like when reading quotes from you and you, th- you know, throw out a really lovely word, I never feel like, oh, she's just using that word. <laughs> it's just because she knows it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. I, I, gosh, I hope, I hope that continues to be the case. Uh, you were an English teacher? Yep. I taught high school English uh, in Brooklyn. For three years. Wow. Um, and then you transitioned into being a professional musician. How did that go for you? Was it completely frightening just to leave your job? Yes and no. I mean, I don't know if you've heard, but teaching is really hard. Oh, yeah. Both my parents are teachers. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> um, and and it's hard because, I mean, you care about it so much and you take the work home with you and you you know I felt like I I didn't have any creative energy left at the end of the day for music when I was teaching I just like because you're creating all day long and when I finally decided like okay I've always wanted to be a musician I see that it is possible to be a musician I need to try this before I'm like married and you know before I have attachments I was 24 I was recently single you know, had no kids. And I was like, this is, this is the moment. <laughs> do it now or you're not going to do it. And that, you know, the, the hardest part of it honestly was that like my parents had just given so much to me to like, you know, like, like you said, I went to NYU, like that is an expensive school, you know, mm-hmm. and like to have these people who have just like invested so much time, love, money in helping me create a life for myself that I wanted and to be like, just kidding. Yeah. I'm going to go be poor for a while, you know? And I, and I asked him, I was like, I was like, Ma, I was particularly, I, I thought my dad would understand a little more because he's, you know, shares this love of me, of 
playing music with me. And I, you know, I also feel bad. I sort of glossed over my mom in the question that you asked earlier about her musical influence. Mm. Can I just say something about that real quick? Let's take it back. I don't want to, I don't want to leave my mom (laughs) out. My mom is very important to me. She, um, like, you know, lots and lots of jazz influence, like lots of Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald. And, um, she, you know, she loves Frank Sinatra. Gotta love Sinatra. And, Mm. uh, and like, Lots of Broadway I can stuff. Kind of hear that in your singing sometimes. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like I've been like, what is that? Where does that come from? Like the line uh, in Champion, which is my favorite line on the record. When you, it's not the whole line, but when you say, "Back when life was books and horses," I, I love that line. Oh, that the does way sound that, like Sinatra. Yeah, like the way that you sing it sounds like really like that is know, hilarious. Soulful, jazzy. You know, that is so funny. It kind of blew my mind. I can hear Sinatra singing that. Back yeah. when life was books and horses. Yeah, I don't know. I would love to hear him sing that. Me too. <laughs> too bad. It's not going to work. <laughs> um, okay, but anyway, uh, mom had lots of influence on me. And so when I was making the transition to from teacher to musician, I was a little more worried about how she was going to take it because she didn't, didn't share this like playing music experience love and she was just amazing about it she was like i I went to her and i was like mom is it is it okay if i like go from being like middle class to to being not to being like blue collar for a while and she was like well honey don't you think if you don't do this you're just always gonna regret it i was like yes (laughs) that is the thing that's exactly the thing (laughs) so yeah i felt incredibly supported and that's great. Lucky. Yeah, and so you told me what kind of person your dad is, what kind of person is your mom? Oh, she's um man, she she was like growing up, she was just like the best mom ever. Um as a person, she's uh I think she and I are are pretty similar. We like having plans and we like having schedules, you know? And control. Yeah, control is a good thing, you know. I I I think to a certain extent Definitely. I mean, I think we, we each are flexible in different ways. I don't. I don't think we're flexible in the same way, but I think that we like control in the same way, which is funny. <laughs> okay, let's talk about what okay. it's like to be a woman in music. Oh, you excited about this? I can't wait. Okay, great. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> it's total bullshit. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, go ahead. Um, okay, so formerly you used to wear vintage dresses on stage. I did. Very beautiful. Um, now you dress more kind of like... Um, a dude. Yeah, like a, <laughs> like you, yeah. like L.L. Bean or Madewell or, you know. Yeah. You dress like a modern woman mm, now. Mm. I And I was looking up all these like wonderful outfits and getting ready to talk about this vintage interest you have. And mm. then I'm like, wait a minute, her press pictures recently she's just like wearing jeans and t-shirts and stuff pretty big shift yeah what is that about that's about a lot that's about a lot of stuff cindy i started wearing the vintage dresses when i was performing with my dad because we were performing the like a bunch of songs from the 1950s you know and it just felt like hey like this like one vintage dresses at that time were like not super this was before mad men you know so they were like not that and Vogue, and I could, like, get them super cheap at thrift stores, and they were beautiful, and they fit me like a glove, and it was like, this is awesome. Like, I can get this gorgeous 
dress for like 30 bucks and it like looks great on stage and my dad can put his tie to match it and like it fits the music. When I moved to Nashville and I started writing songs and putting out records and touring, I was still in that sort of acoustic, all my songs were these narrative story songs that I like to think are a little bit timeless, you know, like they could be sung from a, a, a woman, you know, living in the in the 40s or 50s or 30s or whatever. The sort of like form following content thing, I, I'm, I, I do like form following content. That's like a theme in my writing That's in, in my songwriting and also in performance, I think. I think the shift happened. I stopped wearing dresses after my record Carnival, which I put out in 2013, um, because I fell in love with my husband and like he's he was not my husband then but I like had this like massive like breakthrough you know of falling in love and writing all these songs about my experience in my life and it didn't feel at all right to wear a vintage dress and sing about my experience in my life because mm. the, it just didn't match you know so that's like part of it. And then the other part is just that like, you know, I think those dresses are a, are part of a social construct and a projection, you know, like a performance of self, you know, of a performance of identity that like does not jive with how I want to be viewed in the world. Mm. You know, I don't, mm. I don't really want to objectify myself so much. And that's something that like is a bummer. I'm a I'm a five foot nine, naturally blonde haired, blue eyed white woman. So like I like occupy the physical form of power in a lot of ways, you know? Mm. And like it's expected of me to show off my physical form in this particular way in this industry. And like Are you talking kind of like about like a male gaze? It's not just a male gaze. I mean, it's every like because because the patriarchy affects everybody. You know, I mean, women and men both expect to see women on stage with makeup on. I mean, I, I do. I wear makeup on stage, so that's not even it. But just like women and men both will look at a woman's body on stage and make judgments about what she's wearing, how she looks, you know, in a way that that doesn't happen for men, and like that pisses me off. And it makes me not want to play into that. And so, but I also like, I don't know. It's really funny. Like less, I I used to, when I put out the album Wake, I was, I was like still, I still really cared about how I looked on stage. I was still like, tr I was trying to craft a new image. I was like over the vintage dress thing, trying to craft like, okay, well, if I'm not going to wear vintage dresses, what am I going to wear? How am I going to, how am I going to present myself? And, like, now I just, like, I just don't care, man. Like, it is so not about that for me. And, like, I think that's a, I think that's a bad thing for my career, but I think it's a good thing for the world. <laughs> and so, and it's a good, it's a good thing for me. Like, I used to, like, on that, when we released the album Wake in 2015, one of the, and I was thinking about this just, like, today, because I would wear, like, a fair amount of makeup like like lots of like heavy eyeliner and like maybe foundation which I don't ever wear now and yeah I saw a video of you wearing eyeliner and I was like what 
<laughs> yeah, well, I, I still I still wear eyeliner sometimes, but like I, it felt like I had to. Yeah. It felt like, and it felt like if I didn't show up to the venue already with this makeup on, I got treated very differently by the sound men, by the promoters. The well, it's a power thing. Like if I if I look maximum beautiful, I have more power. Wow. And if I don't look maximum beautiful, I have less power. And so, so it's up to me. It's up to me how I want to leverage that. You know, that was a great answer. And I feel like it kind of like clears up a lot of things for me about your experience of what it's like to be a woman in the music industry. Mm. So I don't feel like I have to ask you any specific questions. So let's talk about uh, writing. Okay. You mostly write songs on your own. Um, I do. Do you ever have any feelings of doubt? For my first couple records, I would sort of like edit as I wrote like I would I wouldn't like move on if I wasn't happy with a previous line or something because which was like so kind of intense you know um and now I am just way more chilled out I think it's part of being older it's part of living in the south longer often I am writing a song and I'm like this feels like a piece of shit to me but I know that if I finish it I might listen to it in two days and really like it, you know, and like, and that happens all the time. It's just like, I think what it is, is just suspending judgment in the moment of creation. And like, as I get older, I get better at doing that. Mm. Let me sum up this pretty quickly, because so we, then we can get to my real question. So you started writing out linear narrative story songs, which were very, they took a lot of influence from traditional folk songs. Um, story songs about other people, places, yourself in that in those narratives as well. But with your 2015 album Wake, you became uh, more vulnerable and personal, and that was due to falling in love with Joe, mm -hmm. your husband. And then you say Champion, your latest album is a marriage of your two writing styles. And correct, I think so. All right, great. In writing, you say you're presenting your authentic self in the songs, and that. When you're about to write, you need time to be yourself and also time to observe yourself. And that there's a switch between observing oneself and just being oneself. Mm. Living your life sounds easy, but then you're like, all right, time to observe. <laughs> like, do you put on a cat or like a special <laughs> observation hat or something? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. No, I mean, it is, it is, it can be challenging. And sometimes, you know, it feels like, we recorded the album in like August 2016 or something. So from August 2016 to, to January 2018, I didn't really write much. Yeah, I mean, during that time, I just had a number of really transformative experiences that mm. that was pretty easy to reflect on. I fi I'm finding myself in this place now where like I'm running out of things to reflect on oh, <laughs> and right. I and I don't have enough songs for a record so I don't know what I'm gonna do pretty sure you're gonna have some things to reflect on yeah that's pretty true soon. pretty soon speaking of that we're at the part of the interview where we talk about fertility oh yes so champion home and family are themes mm -hmm. that are revisited your relationship with Joe your relationship with your family and friends near and far and also the challenge that you and Joe had with infertility. Is it possible to talk a little bit about about that journey? Yeah, I can talk about that journey just in general. Yeah. 
didn't know like what is appropriate yeah. to ask and what's not. No, yeah, that's all good. Um, yeah, I mean, I, whew, I there's just so much. It's hard for me to know uh, exactly where to take it. Um, but you know, I've known since I was 18 that I would very likely not be able to have biological children. I have a condition called premature ovarian failure, also known as primary ovarian insufficiency, um, which is basically just a catch-all that's like, hey, your ovaries stopped working and you're not of menopause age. So why is that? And like, they, they don't know why. And it's pretty, it's pretty rare for it to happen like under the age of 30. So that when I was 18 and it happened, it was, um... Where did you get ill or something? I no, I just stopped having periods. Oh. Yeah. I just like straight up stopped menstruating and like started having hot flashes and night sweats and like these menopausal symptoms and wow. Yeah, it was nuts. Um and it was it was interesting. And so I went on hormone replacement therapy and I'd been on it ever since. That was really interesting and I get the sense that you're interested in what it means to be a woman in the society and uh, and in also, you know, in the music business and whatever, but it was very strange to be 18 and like know that I was probably not gonna be able to have kids. Cause like at that, when you're 18, like all you're thinking about is like, okay, definitely don't want to get pregnant. You know what I mean? Right. Like, and then to be like, oh wait, I can't get pregnant like ever, you know? And then, and then it made dating super weird because whoever you date, you have to be like, and just so you know, <sighs> I can't, you know, to like know that in advance is just like such a bombshell yeah. um, and such a strange. And then like, you know, there's there's all kinds of stuff in there. Joe, you know, Joe and I got together and I, I he, he we were friends for years before we got together. And so he knew about my situation or my condition or whatever you want to call it. And he was just always loving and supportive and sweet. And um, I just feel so lucky to have found someone who. Because, I mean, that can be a deal breaker for people, I think. I mean, you know, maybe it's not a deal breaker. I think I think it is for some people if you can't. Well, if it's if it's the th- <clears throat> if it's your th- the thing for you. Yeah. Like, obviously, you're going to think like this person doesn't want me because of this. Like, I feel right. like doesn't everybody have that? Like, oh, this person that I like won't like me because I'm whatever. Because I'm, you know? yeah, yeah. And that's a deal breaker, you know. Maybe. Or maybe this is like an actual deal breaker for people. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit more. It's a little bit more of a, th- a thing. Yeah, you know? it's a little more of like like uh, on the piece of paper of deal breakers. It's like you know top three probably like right. can't have kids. Ooh, that's pretty major. Yeah, I mean he's just been wonderful always. And so you know we got married and then we knew we wanted to figure out how to have a family. And there were some really yeah, it was just a crazy. I mean I. I the thing about my condition is that five to ten percent of women with premature ovarian failure will just spontaneously ovulate and get pregnant and have a healthy baby. So five to ten percent is like a pretty big percentage. Like that's like one in ten women potentially with my condition. And so I felt like I needed to explore like a natural medicine path and like try and just give my body every possible opportunity to like heal itself before I went and did some crazy science stuff. So we went, we went over to London and saw this uh, traditional Chinese medicine doctor who specializes in infertility and uh, did acupuncture and did all, you know, these crazy Chinese herbs, herbal tea, you know, medicine tea things. And, And that was so interesting. And like, I felt some really fascinating changes in my body, but it ended up not working. 
Um, and I, t- I think it totally could have worked. I think it just didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. The journey for me has been pretty immense. Yeah, I think it's I think it's kind of impossible for someone who is able to have their own children to to understand it uh, because it's like you deal with like grief, the grief for the loss of all these potential futures and mm-hmm. and children, and you deal with grief for the loss of like oh, I, I can't bring my parents with me into my future. Like, my parents are going to die and, like, my children will not connect me to them, you know? So there's, like, just layer after layer of things to process and make peace with if you can. Yeah. And um, And it was, you know, it was tough. It was a tough year. <laughs> um, but... I finally ended up in a place where I had, you know, <laughs> the other thing is I was watching, oh my God, I was watching The Handmaid's Tale, like, at the time when we were, like, shopping for donor oh, wow. clinics. That's a perfect show to watch. For anyone out there struggling with infertility, <laughs> do not watch that show, man. I mean, it's great. It's, and in the book is beautiful. Claire Danes narrates the audiobook. Oh, wow. And it's just beautifully written. It's so good. Um, I was such a glutton for punishment. I watched the whole show and then I listened to the audiobook. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, yeah, I, like, finally got to this place where I, like, realized that the, the the woman who was going to donate her eggs so that I could have children, I have to think of her as, like, a best friend, you know? I, like, for a while, it was, like, this, you know, sort of competitive feeling of, mm. like, I have to let this other woman, like, help make me a woman, you know? Because that's, like, part of our society is, that like, you're not a woman until you're a mother a little bit, you know? I mean, it's not totally there, but it's a little bit there. Eventually, I, like, found found my my way to this place where I just am like so grateful and happy and excited to get to experience pregnancy you know via a donor egg cycle it's just amazing it's totally amazing and it's what's really interesting and since we're talking about music and this is that it like it changes how I interact with my own songs really as I perform them like the song belief um is like the the on on champion is like the the main song i feel like that song is like the the bedrock of the record and um because i was like trying so hard i mean the the chorus is there's a line between hope and belief you've got to choose a side Mm. with your heart with your mind and uh that song verse one is about fertility verse two is about dyslexia you're just gonna love listening to that song now uh anyway uh (laughs) can we stop and listen to it real quick (laughs) (laughs) sure um but not really right no great uh but yeah so like that song you know when I wrote it it was about me like wanting desperately to believe that my body could heal itself and not just hope because I felt like you know there's like this mind body connection thing which I I think is real I don't know if it's real or not I hear it's real um where you where you can like kind of will yourself into Mm. whatever um, which is like both positive and also real tough because if it doesn't work, it's almost like, well, you didn't try hard enough. Um, but uh, anyway, so that song used to be about, um, for me, it used to be about like trying so desperately and wanting desperately to believe that my body could heal itself. And now it's about, um, it's not about that. It's about 
how well, I don't even know if I can put it into words. I've never tried. Um, it's sort of about how like this capacity for like love has always been in me. Did you know and have you uh, listened to any of Tori Amos's songs about her miscarriages? Yes. Yeah. But I couldn't name any of them, but I have. Spark is one. And yeah, she was pretty public about what she was going through, which I think it's really important mm-hmm. as as a an artist or, or like as a public figure to name what what's happening to you you know so i think you're you're doing a great service uh, to talk about infertility and then to talk about this struggle thanks yeah. yeah i think so too i think it's a really isolating thing and um you know what i've learned just through performing is that when you when when i am uh, able and willing to be vulnerable and honest that it just connects me more with people people come up to me after the show and tell me their stories and you know and hold my hand and yeah it's just it's a beautiful yeah it's a beautiful thing well i think here's a really good place to end the interview thank you so much jane this has just been a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much cindy it's been a pleasure to talk to you too and there you have it that's our conversation with Nora Jane Struthers, who is just the dang coolest. Thanks to Nora Jane Struthers for being on the show. Check out her latest album, Champion, wherever you get music. You could buy the vinyl. It's really very good. Thanks to you for listening to Basic Folk. Please subscribe and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you are listening on your podcasts. Thank you to Alexander Stanton of Townspeople for giving us the music for Basic Folk. Thanks to Janelle Gutierrez for helping me with my website, which you can visit, cindyhouse.net. Thank you to Laura McCarthy for your help with the podcast. And we'll see you next week, for real this time, on Basic Folk. Thanks for listening. Bye.